today's a, a big Sunday. It's Labor Day weekend, which is always fun to have a nice extended weekend. But for me, uh, this marks one year of being in vocational full-time ministry. It's been great. And uh, I'm thankful to this church. For those that don't know me, uh, my name is David Cuddle. I'm the executive pastor here. And I, I was a member before I answered a call to go into the pastorate. And uh, I was part of this body for, for several years and was serving in a multitude of ways. But the Lord really, during the pandemic, began to shape my heart towards pastoral ministry. And this church body gave me an opportunity to do that. And so I'm thankful to do that. And what better way to celebrate uh, that anniversary than to get to preach the word to you this morning. So Rob and his family are, are spending some good time together on vacation and so I'm anxious to get to pick up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 1. I'll invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And as you turn there, what I like to do when I'm thinking through my sermon is after I've had time to meditate upon it, reflect on the points that I think the Lord wants to share through what we're going to read. I like, it helps me to see a theme or maybe a key thought that is really the emphasis of what I think the Lord wants to communicate to us this morning. And so as I was looking over just what the Lord was laying on my heart as I've been meditating on these verses and, and thinking through it, I would give you all this key theme or thought as we're going through today, and I hope that you hear this through what I preach this morning. It would be that the miracles of Jesus, particularly his healings and his casting out of demons, inspires us to worship God through serving him with our lives. Because we see the creator interacting with rebellious and fallen humanity in a tender, compassionate, and grace-filled way. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, as is our custom. We, we honor the Word of God by standing in reverence to it. It is the Word of God given to us for our instructions. Let's stand together as we read Mark 1, 29 through 34. Beginning in verse 29. It says, Immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever. And immediately they told, her, told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You can be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear and read the account of Jesus interacting with very broken, very fallen humanity as a result of our sin. God, I pray this morning that you would speak clearly through your word. I pray that you'd give us understanding. Lord, that our understanding would lead to a response that is tied to application and how we can take these truths and apply them to our lives and that our application, God, would be an act of worship, Lord. Um, 
a sign of response to what you've done in our hearts, Lord, that would just overflow through changed actions and behaviors that you would find honoring, and God, that ultimately would glorify your son, Jesus, who is the reason we've gathered today as your church. And Father, I pray there'd be nothing that I say that goes against your word and would lead us astray, but Lord, what I do say would just build us up in the faith, center our hope fully upon Christ, and help us become more fruitful disciples of his. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know technically uh, football season started last week in the college world, but I mean, if we're honest, it started yesterday. And Alan would say because Texas played, but we're not going to go there. But, you know, part of what I like about college football season, as much as the competition and getting to see all these fun upsets and games, is the memories it brings back for me of college life. And uh, there's perhaps some of you all that once you leave, the college campus, and you have opportunities to go back, the minute you step foot on your old campus, it just brings back a flood of memories, right? You remember going from your teenage years to adulthood. You remember that transition from home life to a newfound independence. Uh, For me, most of those memories are very positive. And as much as those memories on campus remind me of my college friends, it also sometimes brings to mind the opportunities I had to go back home. And for me, I I went out of state, and so college for me was about 500 miles away from home. And so I didn't go home very often, and when I did, it was always fun to see the changes that were happening in my family life. I had two younger siblings, so I'd had opportunities to catch up with them of things that were going on with my my parents, get to hear what the Lord was doing in their life or through uh, my old home church. But then there would be those memories of walking into my room and what used to be my place slowly was transforming into my parents' place. My old posters and pictures and mementos somehow found their way, nicely packaged, but put in a box and either elevated to the attic or at least, you know, stuck in my closet. And it was one of those reminders of, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is my home, but my parents expect me to become a man, independent. But they, they always did it in love, no regrets there. But one of the things I, I also remember and I'm, I'm thankful for is to see the different taste in television shows. And so I remember going home and, and seeing what my parents were watching now that I was out of the house. And one of those shows in the early 2000s when I was in college was a show called 24. And it, if you're familiar with it, it followed the lead character. Kiefer Sutherland was the actor. His character name was Jack Bauer. And I don't know how to describe Jack other than he was kind of like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Just always able, trouble was able to find him and he was able to find a way of escape. And at the end of the day, save the United States and the world from a variety of terrorist activities or other things that were going on. But if you're familiar with the show, it was called 24 because it would follow Jack. Each episode was one hour of one day in his life. And somehow in a 24-hour period, he was not only able to figure out this secret plan of attack that was going on, but be able to thwart it in the same episode. But I could join my parents, maybe at episode 17, which would be the 4 to 5 p.m. hour, and I could enjoy it, but I'd have a very limited understanding of what had happened in hours 1 through 16, because I hadn't seen those episodes. Sometimes we can have the danger in the Gospels of jumping into a scene that we think we know exactly what it means and what it 
is communicating for us. But we can forget that before these Gospels, there was a thousand-year-plus history of God's people in Israel that is recorded for our benefit in the Old Testament that led to Christ having to come in the flesh. And for Mark in our passage today, it's equally important. Mark assumes that we understand certain things about what God has revealed through his Old Testament prophets and the lives of the saints from that time that help us understand how Jesus is interacting in the scene today. And if you look back, last week where we pick up where Rob left off, the setting of what we read this morning is the Sabbath. And last week, Rob taught about Jesus entering the synagogue on the Sabbath day and and teaching with authority. But this setting of the Sabbath carries forward with what we're reading today. And I think it's important for us to understand that setting because it helps us understand something that Mark is not explicitly saying in his gospel, but is very much implied, and he understands that we would view this as well. That for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath shows us something about his authority that points greater to his identity. That brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus' healing ministry reveals that he is creator. The Sabbath, we go back to Genesis 1 through 2, and we know the creation account. In six days, God creates the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day, he creates man in his own image. And on the seventh day, he enters into a rest. And he calls that day the Sabbath, and he sets it apart and makes it holy and blessed because his creation is complete and perfect. Nothing for him to do. But what Mark is showing us is that Jesus, who was there in the beginning at creation, comes into his creation only to see that it is fallen and broken and is in desperate need of redemption and restoration. Flip over with me to Colossians chapter 1. Paul gives us some insight into what Mark doesn't, but helps us understand the scene of what is going on with Christ here. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, Paul writes about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. When Paul says here that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's not literally meaning that Jesus was the first thing to be birthed in creation. It's it's pointing us to Christ's preeminence, which is why he goes on to tell us that in Christ, all things were created through him and for him. Created in the image of God, we see the image of the firstborn of all creation physically here interacting with fallen humanity. And so Jesus' mission, if you want to call it that, is the redemption and the restoration of fallen creation. It just happens to be played out on the stage of human history. For us, we can see that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's declared by Jesus to be at hand through spoken word and through the healing ministry that he brings about. 
And you think back on creation. How did God create? He spoke. And so Jesus enters the synagogue and he speaks with authority. The one who is the word now demonstrates the word more fully with the full authority of what he brings. But even with the demonic and these evil powers Rob talked about last week, it's with the spoken word that God brings evil under submission to himself. But yet not just speaking, the one who formed man out of the dust of the ground comes and touches fallen humanity. And in this case, it's Simon's mother-in-law who's sick with the fever. And so Jesus is showing us the full authority on display that he is not only God, he is the creator of all these things. And when we look back on the Old Testament, before we jump into Mark's gospel, Israel's history is written for our benefit because it really reflects our deeper human condition that we all have. We all suffer from the effects of sin. It comes in the form of sickness, other infirmities, the demonic having powers in this world right now. But yet God is also throughout this story of the Old Testament demonstrating his love, his compassion, and really his mercy that we just sing about for all of broken humanity. Turn with me to Psalm 103. We're going to do a lot of scripture this morning. I hope you have a Bible, either electronic or paper, that you can, you can turn with me. The verses will be on the screen as well, but I think it's important for us to look at the word ourselves and reflect on these things. But Psalm 103 is a psalm of David, and he talks about these blessings that he gives back to the Lord for what he has seen the Lord do in his life. Begin with me in verse 2, Psalm 103, verse 2. David writes and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Then skip down to verse 10. God does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So when Mark describes here that Jesus goes to Simon and Andrew's house, he heals Simon's mother-in-law, I think what Mark is wanting us to understand without saying it is that if Jesus has the authority to cast out demons and control evil by a spoken word, And he also has the power to touch and physically heal us from our sicknesses. Then what would prevent Christ from being able to forgive sin itself? Mark would be able to go back to Psalm 103. He'd be able to go back to the prophet Isaiah. And he would see the narrative unfolding through the life of Christ. Which is that our second point this morning. Jesus came to redeem fallen creation and restore broken humanity. 
when we see sickness and suffering, whether it's in the scriptures or in our own lives, we ought to direct our attention to one thought, which is that these things are the result of our sin against God. We, at one time, were God's enemies. Elmer Curley Richardson was an American soldier during World War II. Uh, He was drafted into that conflict in February of 1944. He was attached to the 12th Infantry in the 4th Division, and he ended up in the Kurtgen Forest on the border of Belgium. But 10 months after Elmer was drafted, he found himself on the front lines in a conflict that would later become known as the Battle of the Bulge. He was on patrol in his Jeep, and he was ambushed by the enemy. He was shot in the gut. He suffered multiple injuries to his internal organs. He was able to escape and hid himself in the forest for two days before ultimately he was captured by the enemy. And he had now become a prisoner of war. A German doctor, Ludwig Gruber, himself had been drafted by the Nazi army in 1940. And so for the past four years, before he met Elmer, he had seen the carnage and the brutality that war brings to it. And he began to tend to Elmer, who had been brought to his field hospital. When you think through Elmer's situation, he should have died from his wounds alone. But somehow he survived. But now compound his injuries with the fact that he's a prisoner of war, um, regardless of, of laws that were intended to protect, he had no entitlement to be treated other than an enemy combatant. But this German doctor, Dr. Gruber, had compassion on him, ignored his superiors, and spent hours operating on Elmer. And his actions would ultimately save Elmer's life. Elmer would be released at the end of the war and brought back to the United States, and he would write about this German surgeon who saved his life and showed compassion when he was his enemy. How do you think God should deal with us in our sin? How should he deal with his enemies who have rebelled against him? Have you ever considered yourself that at one point, if you have put your faith in Christ, that you were an enemy of God? Or maybe today, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, the Bible would say that our default condition because of our sin is that we are not on God's good side. We are his enemies. But Jesus is sent into broken humanity and a fallen world so that we can be reconciled back to God despite our rebellion through sin against him. And just like the soldier on that battlefield was cared for by the enemy— God's intervened in every one of our situations. And that is through Christ, he has come to save us from his judgment upon our sin. But due to our our broken sinful nature, rather than asking questions when we suffer or see suffering and evil in this world, from God's perspective, we tend to ask things from a man-centered perspective. So it may sound like this today in our day and age. Why do bad things happen to good people? And if God is so loving, then why is there so much pain and evil in the world? 
But the Bible asks us to pause and doesn't say that those are necessarily the wrong questions to ask, but wants us to consider reframing them from God's perspective. And so from God's perspective, the questions we ought to ask should be, why does God continue to put up with my own choice of sin and evil over him? And why would God allow me to choose anything evil against himself? These questions lead us to what the Bible would would explain, is that God receives greater glory in redeeming us than if sin had never happened. Al Mohler is quoted as saying this, God's glorious purpose is that he would be known to his human creatures not only as creator, but also as redeemer. And God's glory as redeemer is greater than his glory as creator. As we work through Mark, you'll hear many of us that are preaching these passages go back to the prophet Isaiah. And much of what Mark writes about leverages the prophecies that Isaiah had about the Messiah to help us understand who Jesus is and why he came. And Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet who was really his ministry bridged a unique gap of Israel's history where it was both before and during exile. And exile was the term that we use when Israel had sinned against God, that God pronounced his judgment against them and said, because you are so sinful, Israel, I am going to take you out of the land that I promised I would give you, and I am going to give you over to to the enemy. And I'm going to allow you to be exiled under them for your punishment for your sin. And even though Isaiah had a harsh message and that he was bringing the condemnation that God had told him to preach through the judgment of God, Isaiah is also littered with numbers of prophecies that God would be their redeemer, that he would return to his people and bring them back to God. In Matthew's account of this same story, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew makes this connection even more explicit. In Matthew 8, 17, on the heels of telling the same story that Jesus entered Peter's house and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with the fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she began to serve. Matthew writes and he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. What Matthew is quoting here goes back to Isaiah 53. You can turn with me there. This is the the famous passage of Isaiah's prophecy. Many of your Bibles may call it the suffering servant. But he describes what Jesus would come to do. He describes his physical form and what he would take on because of our sin. When we look at Isaiah 53, verse 4, we see echoed, what Matthew was pointing us to and what Mark wants us, I think, to see as well. Read this with me. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, speaking of Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, when we understand the Old Testament, we can go back to the Levitical laws and the Mosaic laws. And if you're familiar with the Jewish customs and culture, cleanliness was a reflection of godliness, right? Maybe that's where we got the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? It's definitely not in the Bible. But when we think through from their Jewish mindset, to to have any type of skin disease or to become physically ill was a sign of evil or sin in that person's life. And so what Moses commanded, as we see a lot in Leviticus, are these unusual commands for us, but for multiple washings, and then to go and present yourself to the priest if you've really been cleansed. But then also quarantine rules, that until you're, you're healed and made better, you can't even be within the camp and worshiping among the congregation. So to have any type of sickness could really be a debilitating thing for someone that was in this Jewish culture. It not only meant you were separated from the congregation, they took it as a physical representation that you were separated by, from God himself because of your sin. And Isaiah 53 is pointing us to the, the great irony that God in all of his holiness, that these laws were intended to protect the people from coming in contact with him and, and thereby perishing because they were unholy, that God would flip the script that he would come as a suffering servant, that he would bear our griefs, he would carry our sorrows, and that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that with his wounds we would be healed. That as Matthew said, he would come taking on our sickness and our infirmities. So with Isaiah and what Mark, I think, is implying and what he wants us to see, is that when we look at Jesus coming on the scene in the New Testament, we see this great fulfillment of God's love and compassion that we saw in Psalm 103 becoming tangible to his people. The pure is going to become impure. The honored one is going to become dishonored for us. The exalted one is going to become humbled. The one who is strong is going to become weak. The innocent will take on our guilt. And the sinless, as Paul writes in Corinthians, will become sin for us. And all this is done so that we can be restored back to God through faith in what Christ has done for us. You'll hear Rob say this a lot. Jesus in our place. And so Christ's first coming dealt with sin and death. His mission was to show that he had the authority and the power over evil and over sin to take those things onto himself and and conquer them. And he does so through his death. But his resurrection gives us hope that in his second coming, we will experience the complete restoration. And earlier this summer, Rob did a great job pointing us to the reality that no matter the level of suffering we have now, if we put our faith in Jesus We have the hope to come a full restoration in the presence of God when our mortal bodies will put on the immortal. What was imperfect in the flesh will be perfected and will be made whole in the presence of God. And these are all 
great heavenly things for us to meditate and think about, right? They stretch our understanding of who God is. And again, when we read these gospel accounts, this is the Jesus we are reading about. The creator of the universe, but the one who came and humbled himself, despite having all authority and power over the universe, humbling himself for you and for me because of our sin. And Mark takes unwritten these realities of who Jesus is, and he gives us what maybe in our society and day and age is one of the most mundane, ordinary life experiences. Simon's mother-in-law has a fever. In our day and age, we'd say, take an ibuprofen, right? But the reality is in their cultural times, a fever, we don't know in this case what her illness could have been, but it could have been something that, that could have resulted in death, right? The benefits of modern medicine and how we go through things day to day with our own sickness and things that seem minor to us in these times could have been incredibly serious. And we don't know the context, but that's not the point. The point is that Jesus comes and he heals. The one who is creator, the one who would suffer for our sin, is not above humbly coming into Simon and Andrew's life and healing Simon's mother-in-law. And so what is the point of this? What, why would Mark draw our attention to it? That leads us to our third point today. Mark wants us to see that the works of Jesus strengthened his disciples' faith and that they responded in worship through service. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. So we're still in the Sabbath day. Mark likes to use this term immediately, and it's not necessarily a literal term, but it's just a connection that the events haven't really been broken up by anything major. And so Mark tells us that after leaving the synagogue, he entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John, his, his fishing buddies, his friends. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever, and immediately they told her about her. Jesus came, takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Jesus works through his disciples' circumstances to demonstrate his power to save. Think about the effects that this healing would have not only on Simon, but also on his family's faith in Christ. We go back a little bit earlier, and in verse 16 of chapter 1, we have the account where Simon and Andrew and James and John were called by Christ to leave their profession and come follow him, to become fishers of men. And so here... The first account, at least, that we have written for our benefit of Jesus interacting with his disciples' extended family is that he sees them in their need and demonstrates to them that he's ready to meet them in that place and give them what they probably desire, but what they need in order to have their faith strengthened in Christ. And this again goes back to where we started this morning. If Jesus is creator, it also shows us that he doesn't lack the resources, the power, nor the willingness to want to work in and through his disciples' lives to provide for what they need. And if Simon can rely on Christ for what seems to be a very minor issue, but one that nonetheless 
stood out to the disciples early on that it was carried forward in Mark's Gospels and the others, then what would it mean for the rest of their life? How would this act of Christ encourage them to increase their faithfulness in response to the faith that they've put on Jesus? Healing is a a sensitive topic. We did a a spiritual gift series earlier this year, and, and Rob taught about healing, and it raises a lot of questions. And without going into detail of, of how healings played out in the early church, I think for us, what we need to be careful of is that there be any insistence that to have a certain level of faith in God automatically translates into being healed and being healthy. It's a dangerous thing to be commanded to increase your faith in God with, to believe that if I just grow my faith, that God will then act in my situation. There are enough godly examples for us, not only in Scripture, but throughout history, of Christians who have suffered immensely for the gospel, and yet their faith was the strongest could, could have ever been. And Christ's healing ministry here is not focused on the disciples' faith in him. The healing ministry is meant to magnify Jesus' power and Jesus' authority, not the disciples' faith. And if we try and overread ourselves into this, we become very dangerous of replacing faith in Christ, that it's faith on our own. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Paul is probably the epitome of someone who we know was beset with weaknesses and yet did not deny that he had faith. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and in the the famous passage where Paul is talking about this thorn, as he describes it, it was given to him, some type of physical infirmity that he was given in order to keep him humble, and that he pleads with the Lord over and over again that it would be removed from him. But look at the Lord's response to Paul in the middle of that request to have suffering removed. He's told in verse 9 that God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Suffering for a Christian is an opportunity to experience the fullness of God. And the way we experience that fullness is through comfort. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, flip over to the left to chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians, as much as Paul is talking about the hardships he faces, he, he shows us that it's an opportunity for us to grow as disciples in order to disciple others through difficult seasons of life. But 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, in any affliction with what? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what Paul is saying is even in his hardships, 
the word of God to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then passes that on to other disciples who themselves may be struggling, begging the Lord for mercy and for compassion. And yet the silence, if you want to call it that, of the Lord not responding to bringing physical relief is one of our faith can be strengthened because we know that God still comforts us in those moments. Many of you all know that uh, this summer we completed our adoption of little, little Liliana. That's a mouthful. Little Liliana. And uh, she's, she's doing great. And many of you, I know, ask continually, you know, how things are going. And uh, I was thinking about this principle that Paul gives us here. Comfort those who are going through any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And if you've had the opportunity to meet Lily, you know she... She came from India. She doesn't know how to speak English to communicate. Her comprehension is off the charts. She's, she's tremendous when it comes to us asking her to do things. But there are these unsaid things that are communicated in a family dynamic that are totally foreign to her. She's never had a mother and father that she can look back upon. She's been an orphan from birth. And so for her to come into our home and suddenly perceive that, hey, these two adults, David and Anna, have some kind of hidden authority that these other kids do what they say? What's up with that? But think of it from her perspective, too, with her siblings. The Lord has given her three older sisters who can model for her that even though she doesn't understand why her parents took away that toy or why her parents are insisting on her not behaving a certain way and asking her to consider behaving in a different way in the context of what we're dealing with, she can look at those older sisters and see their level of trust in Ananias' godly parents. They can see that our children love us even through times of discipline or correction and that that will help her not only grow in her trust of us as parents, but grow in her love of us and where we are trying to lead her in life. But do you ever think of your relationship with God in that way? Do you ever wonder that maybe, just maybe, God is allowing you to go through a rough season of life so that you can find comfort in him, but not for just your own benefit, but for whose? That of others. And when we stop and think that What God is really forming through Christ is a new family. That the restoration work is not just our individual salvation, but then that we are called together to be the church through Christ. It gives us a different dynamic to what we call life-on-life discipleship. We encourage spiritual disciplines, but sometimes the best lessons are caught, not taught. And so as we suffer one another as members in this body and we demonstrate to those around us how to suffer well or how to endure hardships in a God-honoring, Christ-centered way, the result is that the church is built up in unity. And whether that is a diagnosis of sickness, uh, whether it's hardships and persecutions that we may face for following Christ, the body is strengthened when we lean in to Christ and throw our full faith upon him 
and become better examples of obedient Christians and disciples. The comfort you have received has been given so that it can be passed along to others. And so think back to Simon and his family's experience using what we've looked at with Paul, using what we've seen of the story of Christ entering broken humanity as the suffering servant. Simon now sees Jesus take his mother-in-law's hand and heal her of her fever. Would Simon not be able to draw upon that experience in the future? And for disciples that were struggling through suffering themselves or doubting whether or not God had their family's best interest at heart, would he not be able to recall this lesson that he saw Christ do firsthand for him and encourage them to strengthen their faith in the Lord? What about Simon's wife? As Simon goes on this this crazy adventure with this man that says, hey, leave your occupation, leave everything behind and follow me, can she trust that Simon will be able to still provide for his family? And what about her mom, right? Simon's mother-in-law. In-law relationships can already have, you know, difficult dynamics maybe for some of us. But Jesus steps into these familial ties in order to strengthen, I think, Peter's faith and make him a more effective disciple. Jesus constantly was drawing attention to the cost of becoming a disciple, never to the ease, right? And Jesus was moving Simon, I think, here to look beyond having faith in his circumstances to putting his faith fully on the person of Christ and him alone. But then this context of the healings, right? I think it points us to the work that God is doing. He's not only restoring humanity back to himself, but he's creating or recreating us in the image of Christ by forming a God-centered family that he will call the church. And so God the Father sends the Son to adopt us into his family as his redeemed children. I've said this before, and I can't remember who I attribute the quote to, but the New Testament name for God is Father. And I think it's no coincidence that Mark draws the connection here with the scene of a family and the healing of Jesus. He addresses the crowds and the many, but for some reason Mark really wanted Simon's mother-in-law to be included specifically for what happened to her. And so when you read the gospel accounts of Christ— Do you believe that Christ can still and will do that type of work through you today in your life? Simon's mother-in-law responds through service. She's healed, and we see that she serves the group. Now that she has her strength restored, this is her opportunity to worship Jesus by doing it through service. And for us, our worship comes in a variety of forms and different acts. But one of the consistent ways that we can worship God is by serving him with all of our life. Turn with me as we close this morning to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 14. What do we do in response to what God has done for us? Look at what the psalmist writes. 
They say, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. My translation of this is, what do I do for everything that Christ has done for me? Number one, I'm going to glory in the fact that I am saved and redeemed by what Christ has done. But number two, I'm going to fulfill honoring God by living a life worthy of the calling to which I've been called. And I'm going to do that in the presence of God's people and in the presence of all people, the world, and proclaim this, that all can come to faith. As we close in the worship team, comes up this morning in your worship guide there are some reflection questions and maybe these will help you respond to what you've heard this morning through the message of the word but as we we close our time my initial question is what will be said of us what will be said of you and me in our lives and how is god leading you to respond to what you've heard this morning In your worship guide, there are these response questions that maybe will help lead you to a response. But first, what is your faith dependent upon? Is it on your circumstances or is it on the person of Christ? Second, what works has God done in your life to strengthen your faith? And when you remember those things, give him praise for what he has done in and through you. But then third, how are you using the faith you have received through the power of God at work in you to serve Christ's kingdom? How can you worship God through service in the coming days? The story of Simon Peter and his mother-in-law, we could easily skip over it just doing a, a morning devotional reading. But I think when we back up and we see it's the picture of creator God entering into our brokenness so that we can be redeemed and restored back to him, it ought to cause us to want to worship God. And one of the primary ways we can do that is by giving him our our whole life and serving him. Let's stand together. As we close, we're going to sing a song that is heavy on the theme of forgiveness and redemption. Christ has accomplished for us but there'll be pastors at the front and if you need prayer or you need counseling or there's something in response to the word today that you want to talk with one of us about we would love to meet with you and pray over you this is a great opportunity for us to give praise to Jesus let's sing together